Section 6 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dykstra, Farragut, Iowa. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter 5. As the breeze continued light and favorable, the boat ran on all night under easy sail. A bright lookout was kept, however, and the possibility of meeting a dhow creeping along shore. Just as morning dawned, and they arrived abreast of a deep bay which Adair intended to explore, three dhows were seen standing out from under the land, with their wide spread of canvas wooing the light breeze. It was pretty evident that the boat had been discovered. Adair therefore ordered the crew to lower the sails, and to take to their oars, which they did with right good will, hoping to catch two, at least, of the strangers in sight. The smallest and leading vessel showed Arab colors. A shot across her forefoot quickly made her haul them down. The other two exhibited no bunting. From the efforts they were making to escape, it was pretty evident they were full slavers. As soon as Adair reached the first dhow, he leaped on board, but a glance told him that she was a legal trader with not a slave in her as far as he could judge, although there were several black men whom the Nagoda affirmed belonged to the vessel. "'We'll give you the advantage of believing you,' said Adair, jumping back into his boat, which pulled away to the nearest of the other vessels. Just then she lowered her sail. "'Hurrah!' cried Desmond. "'She has given in.' "'Not a bit of it,' answered Adair. See, she is going to set a wider spread of canvas than before. He was right. Presently a long tapering yard rose to the head of the stern, the sail swelling out like the balloon jib of a racing yacht, and shining brightly in the rising sun. Should the breeze increase, she will walk away from us like grease lightning, as the Yankees say, observed Adair. We'll hope, then, it will remain calm, said Archie. As it was, Though the men strained at their oars, it taxed their utmost strength to gain on her. Still, they were gaining. Desmond and Archie stepped forward to assist Jerry in getting the gun ready to fire a shot as soon as they got near enough to make her heave to. Light as was the breeze, the dhow continued to slip rapidly through the water. It was evident, however, that the boat was gaining on her, and the men redoubled their efforts. "'Shall we fire, sir?' asked Archie. We might manage to bring down her sail. Fire over her, answered Adair. A shot might chance to hurt some of the poor slaves, instead of the rascally Arabs. Jerry elevated the gun and pulled the trigger. Away flew the shot right through the dhow's huge sail, but her crew, looking to windward, fancied that the breeze was about to freshen. The gun was quickly sponged and again loaded. Try another shot, cried Adair. If you can hit the yard or mast, it will save us a long pull. Jerry willingly obeyed, but again the shot, though well aimed, only went through the sail. Very good practice, said Adair, but just let it be a little better. Jerry Bird, though watching the chase, could not help now and then taking a look at the countenance of the old chief, Mustafa Longchops, the sailor called him, but whether he wished the Dow to escape or not, it was difficult to say. Jerry had again got the gun ready, and putting it on the breech, he exhorted it this time to do its duty. 
Again he pulled the trigger, when the next instant down came the long yard by the run on deck. The midshipman uttered a hearty cheer, taken up by Adair and the crew, and in a few minutes they were alongside the vessel. The Arabs, however, seeing only a single boat and unsupported, had made up their minds, it seems, not to yield without a struggle. Some twenty savage-looking fellows, some armed with two-handed swords, others with muskets and assegais, stood ready to defend their vessel. As the pinnace ranged up alongside, several shots were fired and assegais hurled at them, one of which, whizzing close to Adair's ear, stuck quivering in the stern sheets as he was springing up the side. The dauntless seamen, however, were not to be stopped by their show of weapons and threatening gestures. In spite of the Arabs, who cut and slashed right and left with their two-handed swords, several of the blue jackets were about to spring up the vessel's side when one of the former, aiming a blow at the head of the boathook with which Jerry Bird was holding on, cut it right through, and at the same instant some of the Arab crew, who had in the meantime been bending on fresh halyards, hoisted away on the sail, the dow forging ahead. "'Fire at those fellows!' cried Adair to the small-armed men, who, letting fly with their muskets, bowled over three at once. The oars were meantime again got out, and the sail having come down on deck, the boat once more dashed up, this time making for the starboard bow. Jerry took the precaution of making fast with a stout rope, and, led by Adair, all hands were quickly on board, two more of the Arabs being shot down. The others, however, still bravely attempted to defend their vessel, wielding their weapons with the same vigor as before. But, desperate as they were, they could not withstand the British cutlasses, and were driven aft for refuge in the cabin, crying out for mercy. All this time shrieks and groans arose from the hold, while the vilest of odors, a mixture of everything abominable, pervaded the vessel, leaving not a doubt, even had the crew not attempted to defend her, that she was a full slaver and a legal capture. "'Hand over your arms,' cried Adair, "'and we'll spare your lives.' It is possible some one among the Arabs might have understood English. At all events, the whole of the crew soon hurried up and handed over their swords and other weapons to the victors. "'Tumbled their arms into the pinnace,' said Adair. "'We must have that other dow. "'Gordon and Desmond, I'll leave you with five men to manage these fellows "'while I go in chase of her. "'If I take her, keep close to me. "'Signalize should they show any inclination to be mutinous, "'and I'll bear down and help you. "'I'll leave you the canoe. "'We shall make better way without her.' "'Saying this, Adair shoved off and pulled away in chase of the third dow.' The first care of the midshipmen was to complete the task in performing which the three Arabs had been killed, and to hoist up the sail, aided by several of the crew, whom they compelled at the point of their swords to lend a hand, while, one of the seamen being sent to the helm, the dow steered after the pinnace in hot chase of the still uncaptured slaver, the canoe, which had hitherto been alongside, being stowed astern. The deck of the dow, on board which the midshipmen found themselves, presented a horrible appearance. The three men who had first been shot lay stiff and stark, weltering in their blood at the foot of the mast. Farther off sat the Nagoda, with a shot through his leg and another in his body, 
glaring fiercely at them, while another man lay not far off, writhing in agony, with life ebbing fast. The rest of the crew, greasy, dirty ruffians, with close-fitting turbans and caps in their heads, baggy trousers, and vests covering their bodies, stood about with sulky hangdog looks, regarding the victors. "'We must keep an eye on these fellows,' said Jerry Bird to Archie. "'They'll not mind cutting our throats if they have the chance.' "'Little doot about that,' said Archie. "'But hello. Here's our old friend, Mustafa Longchops. How did he get on board?' It was very evident that the old chief must have scrambled up after the seaman boarded and stowed himself away till the fight was over. What was his object in so doing was difficult to ascertain. It wasn't with any good intention, I've a notion, said Desmond. However, we'll be up to him. I think, sir, said Jerry Bird, we may as well see if they've got any more arms stowed away. If they have, the sooner they're hove overboard, the better for if they get hold of them, the Arabs would prove somewhat ugly customers on a dark night. Jerry's advice was followed. While two of the hands kept an eye on the crew on deck, Jerry and Desmond, with the rest, searched the after-cabin and discovered no less than a dozen muskets, several pistols and swords, and some formidable-looking knives or daggers, which would have proved deadly weapons in the hands of the Arabs. They were all quickly hove overboard, greatly to the disgust of their former owners. They were, however, not the only articles discovered. "'Hello! What's this?' cried Jerry, drawing out a box from the locker. "'It seems pretty heavy for its size. Shouldn't be surprised to find it full of gold.' Desmond, who was superintending the search, laughed. "'We can scarcely expect such good luck as that,' he answered." "'We'll try, sir,' said Jerry, prizing open the top with one of the daggers which he had retained. "'Hurrah! I was right, sir,' he sang out. "'Golden pieces, every one of them. Four or five hundred, at least.' "'No doubt about it,' observed Desmond, examining the box. "'It is not ours, however, after all. "'We must hand it over to the commander as part of the cargo found in the prize, "'as well as every other article of value.' though we shall get our share in due time. "'To be sure, sir, to be sure,' answered Jerry with a sigh. "'At first I thought you and Mr. Gordon and the rest of us might pocket it. But it's all right. We must share and share alike.' Desmond ordered the box to be stowed away in the forepart of the cabin, which he and Archie intended to occupy. The Arab captain cast a longing glance at his treasure as it was carried away, possibly regarding the present possessors with no friendly feeling. The discovery induced the seamen to make a further search, and jewelry, pieces of cloth, and silk, and numerous rich Arab garments were brought to light, sufficient altogether to fill a considerable portion of the cabin. "'Now let's look after the slaves below,' said Archie. "'The poor fellows must have been in a fearful quandary,' while the fighting was going forward. Whatever feeling of pity the condition of the wounded Arabs might have excited in the breasts of the English was removed when they came to examine the hold. Indeed, the horrible state of the unhappy beings surpasses all description. Upwards of two hundred human beings were found stowed away in the hold of the craft, which could not have measured more than a hundred tons. On a bamboo deck, 
scarcely raised high enough above the keel to be free of the abominably smelling bilge water which occupied her lowest depths lay some eighty or ninety men doubled up and packed so closely together that it was utterly impossible for them to stretch their legs while there was not room enough for them to raise their heads without touching the deck above they were stowed away indeed literally as jerry bird observed like herrings in a cask above them were an equal number of women huddled together doubled up in the same fashion the space being insufficient for them to sit or recline on the highest deck were penned away a still larger number of children of various ages ranging from six years old to twelve or thirteen girls and boys with even less space allowed them in proportion to their size than their elders the miserable wretches were evidently suffering fearfully from starvation and dysentery many were too weak to move and several on the point of breathing their last five or six of the women had infants in their arms but a few weeks old as one of the mothers was brought on deck she exhibited her child with its head crushed in which she intimated had been done just after the boat had been discovered in pursuit by one of the arabs because the child had been crying somewhat lustily let's see the fellow who did it exclaimed desmond and we'll pay him off for his barbarity the woman understood him and looked about among the crew till her eye fell on the wounded arab who still lay writhing on the deck is that he asked desmond well he has got his due and little pity any of us can feel for him the midshipmen with their cargo of slaves and villainous prisoners found themselves in a very trying position requiring the full exercise of all their wits and energies probably had adair had time to consider he would not have left them with so small a force on board but his eagerness to overtake the other dhow prevented him from reflecting on the difficulties and dangers they would have to encounter their first care was to try and ameliorate the condition of the slaves search was made for such food and water as the dhow contained and the arabs were ordered to prepare a hearty meal for them a task they set about with no very good grace the only provisions they discovered were rice and millet seed with scarcely drinkable water and of these in most limited portions on which the slaves would have had to subsist till the termination of their voyage no wonder that many had died and that nearly all looked more like living skeletons than human beings if we'd had dick needham on board he'd have told us how they managed with slavers captured on the west coast observed archie i'll tell you said jerry bird i've seen many a one taken the best way is to get up forty or fifty at a time on deck and set them dancing it seems to put new life into them bad as they may be the midshipmen followed jerry's advice at once and released fifty of the men who crawled up and squatted down on either side of the deck a mess of rice with a little water was then served out to each of them they eagerly swallowed the food cramming it into their mouths like monkeys but with less intelligence or animation in their countenances than those creatures exhibit they don't look as if they had much dancing in them observed gerald stay a bit said jerry we'll soon see whereon he began skipping about snapping his fingers and singing then he took hold first of one and then of another and in a few seconds more than half of them were dancing like magic on their feet <laughs> 
imitating his movements. Many more of them, seeming willing to join in the sport, had they possessed the requisite strength. They sang and laughed and jabbered away as if they had not a care in the world. Faith, they look more like dancing skeletons than anything else, said Gerald, watching the poor fellows. The voices of many of them were also so faint as scarcely to be audible, in spite of their efforts to sing out. Indeed, it seemed a wonder that they could utter any notes except those of wailing and despair. Of course, an anxious eye had been kept on the pinnace and the vessel she was chasing. "'She's up to her,' cried Desmond, who was looking through his glass. "'She's struck without a blow, and there go our fellows tumbling on board.' Little doubt, however, about her being a slaver, though, as they must have seen the way in which we got hold of this craft. They thought it as well to save their bacon and make the best of a bad job. It was evident that Adair had got easy possession of the third dow, as the sail, which had at first been lowered, was quickly hoisted again while the pinnace was dropped astern. He appeared to consider that all was going well on board the first capture, as he did not shorten sail to allow her to come up. Perhaps he was too busy with the Arab captain and the slaves to think about the matter. The first gang of blacks, having enjoyed themselves for some time in their own fashion, were ordered below. The women were next got up. Poor creatures! There was very little dancing power in them, many of them being mothers who had lost their children, and others with dying infants in their arms many of them in the last stage of sickness. Still, some of them, on being set to work, began skipping about, clapping their hands, laughing and singing, at no little risk of breaking in the frail deck. For, in general, being fatter, they were heavier than the men. The Arabs looked on with evident disgust, not comprehending the object of the English in expending so much food and allowing the Negroes to move about thereby increasing their appetites. The poor children were the last to appear on the stage, and they were all turned out together, looking more like apes than human beings. Having been on the highest deck, with some ventilation from above, they were less in want of air than the grown-up people, though they seemed to enjoy the exercise allowed them even more than the rest. But not a particle of the animation of childhood was discernible among any of them. From the way they moved about, they seemed to fancy that their dance was but a prelude to their being put to death to fill the cooking pots of the white men, which their Arab captors had told them would be their lot. All hands had been so busy that no one had thought of eating themselves. It was then discovered that a bag of biscuit alone had been brought on board and a bottle of rum, which one of the men in the pinnace had handed up to Jerry just as she was shoving off. This was, however, better than nothing, and they hoped before long to be up with the other prize and to obtain more substantial fare. The day was now drawing to a close. The wind continued light as before, and the two dows retained their relative positions, the last taken being about half a mile on the port bow of the other. The four dead bodies were hove overboard, for the badly wounded wretch had followed his companions to the other world. Archie and Gerald had done their best to bind up the hurts of the Nagoda, who had been placed in the cabin with such care taken of him as circumstances would admit. 
They tried to make him understand that, as soon as they could fall in with a surgeon, his wounds would be better dressed. The Arab crew, being tired, coiled themselves away in different parts of the vessel, while Mustafa Longchops had seated himself at his ease near the skipper. Thus the management of the dhow was left entirely to her captors. Archie and Desmond consulted together as to whether they ought to clap the crew in irons, or, rather, to lash their arms and legs together, thus putting it out of their power to commit mischief. They settled, however, as Adair had said nothing about it, to allow them to remain at liberty. Archie, of course, took one watch and Desmond the other, with the crew divided between them. As the night advanced, the wind increased, and the dhow made rapid way through the water, steering after Adair's prize. No moon was shining, clouds gathered in the sky, and the night became darker than usual in those latitudes. Desmond was to keep the first watch, with one man at the helm and another on the lookout, while Archie lay down just inside the door of the cabin, with Jerry near him, the other two men going forward. "'I'll sleep with one eye open, sir,' said Jerry, "'and will be up in a moment if I'm wanted.' The Arab crew were sleeping about in groups on the deck, where they had lain for some time, none of them having offered to lend a hand to do anything. Desmond had been awake for the greater part of the previous night, and, having undergone a good deal of excitement during the day, it was no wonder that he found it difficult to keep his eyes open. Still, he did his best to watch a light which Adair had hung over the stern of his prize, and, after looking for some time, he felt convinced that they were slowly gaining on her. Every now and then he turned to the man at the helm with some remark, and then shouted to the other Ford to keep a bright lookout. At length, however, the light ahead began to flicker and dance, and now to grow larger, now to decrease, till it was scarcely visible. He was holding fast on to the side of the dow, and found some support necessary. He looked up at the huge sail, which, bulging out, seemed to grow larger and larger, till it towered up into the sky. Desmond was a very promising officer, but even the most promising are made of flesh and blood, and require sleep to restore exhausted nature. The most vigilant would not have found him nodding, for he would have promptly answered with perfect correctness had he been spoken to. Notwithstanding that, Gerald Desmond was certainly not broad awake, or rather, he was as fast asleep as a midshipman standing on his legs, with his eyes wide open, could be. His thoughts, too, were wandering, now to Ballymacree, now to Commander Murray's home in the Highlands, and now away to the West Indies, where he might still be, for all he knew. Just then, suddenly he felt a cloth thrown over his eyes, and before he could put up his hands to draw it away, he found his arms pinioned behind him. The same instant, he heard Archie and Jerry Bird sing out, and the man at the helm struggling desperately with a number of the Arabs, while from every part of the dow arose shouts and cries. Then there came a splash, then another and another. The next instant he was hurled head foremost overboard, happily his arms getting free as he struggled impulsively to save himself from his impending fate. 
End of section 6.